0: Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. Remember the context of where we are in the course of Jesus's life. So before we jump into these stories, let me remind you that 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 Jesus has already now been, been polarizing people a little bit. He's been really pushing them to say, what is it? You know, am I worthy of all submission? <laughs> am I worthy? do i really have all the authority i claim to have or don't i and if i don't then you really shouldn't follow me but if i do then nothing else is more important than following me and um and if you think you need more signs you've already had a bunch and you're going to get a really big one coming up and so the, the the time to decide is here and and um and even by here i think he means at the crucifixion and resurrection even after that but but he's he's already been really pushing and so he's getting stronger and stronger I think along with that, what we've seen his with the Pharisees is that he's always been willing to hang out with them. He has dinner with them a lot. He's he so he's always been willing to eat with them. He's been willing to hang out with them, but he's also been very strong with them as well. And as we get closer, the conflict between them is becoming greater. They're becoming more proactive in their scheming. They're they're getting to a place where they're no longer just kind of trying to figure them out, but they're 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 more and more determined to actually. Out him as a dangerous revolutionary who's going to get them all killed, um, as somebody who's making blasphemous heretical claims, whatever they have to do to get him out of there, including killing killing him. And so they're getting stronger. And I think part of what we see tonight is him getting stronger, not because he's giving up on them, but because he's desperately trying to reach them. So he's gonna make some very strong statements. But I think in the context of the Pharisees, they make sense. They're strong statements that I think are are targeted towards them in ways that they may or may not be targeted towards you specifically. I mean, I'll leave that up to you, but I do think they won't necessarily be, you might say, well, that's really strong. It is. And maybe you don't need that strength, even though everything he says is true, but the Pharisees probably did. So I just want to throw that in there. I think that's at least part of the reason that these stories are a little difficult for us is because let's just say they're not as gentle as many of the things that we've come across so far and the very first one he just it's a weird parable with a weird example and I think it's easy to get distracted but the point is again pretty clear when you get to the end of it all right so Luke 16 starting in verse 1 Jesus told his disciples now I want to point this out too he is talking to his disciples he's no longer talking to the large crowds but I, I think is the indication but it also shows us in a few verses or a little bit later that the Pharisees are definitely here too. So I think it's a smaller crowd. And again, it's the more, it's it's the it's both the more committed crowd, those being his actual disciples, as well as those who are just more committed to hurting him, those being some of the Pharisees. And so again, that explains also the context of the strength um, of everything he shares. So here we go says so Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions so he called in him called him in and asked him what is this I hear about you give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer the manager said to himself what shall i do now my master is taking away my job my job i'm not strong enough to dig and i'm ashamed to beg I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors, and he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Okay, so this is an, this is a, an interesting parable because Jesus ends up saying it, there, there's at least some way in which we should emulate the manager and, or the steward. And yet the, the manager or the steward is not a good guy. And I don't think Jesus is making any bones about that. He doesn't behave honorably throughout this whole thing. He behaves sort of shrewdly with a certain set of priorities, and I think that's what Jesus is getting at, but he's not at all commending the dishonesty or the selfishness uh, of the particular steward. So just to be clear about the nature of the steward, at the very beginning, we're introduced to him as being a bad steward. He's not managing well, and I think the implication is he's embezzling already. Like he's keeping money that he's supposed to be using on behalf of his master, right? So he's getting fired because he's wasting his money. I think literally wasting his money. My guess is he's probably embezzling. So his answer to that, interestingly enough, looked at from one perspective is just to steal more from the man, from the owner, right? When he when he cuts everybody's bills down, he's he's stealing from the master, and he's not doing it to impress the master. He's doing it because he knows he's going to be fired. He already figures he's done, but he's trying to make friends of these other people so when he is fired he can go to them and say, "Remember how I gave you a deal? Remember how I cut your 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 bills in half? So I need your help now. How about you you help me out? You know, give me a job or whatever it is." So it's it's dishonest, it's selfish. You know, there's not a lot here to admire. And I think it is important to understand that Jesus is not saying that those things should be admired. He even calls him a dishonest manager. He emphasizes this. But I think part of his point is there's something of contrast. I think he's saying that what's interesting is even this dishonest, evil, wicked, crooked manager is is thoughtful and is contemplating the future. He's aware of what's coming. And so he's using what he has at his disposal in in one sense, wise ways. And I think Jesus is saying it's a contrast thing. If the, if the people of the dark are doing that, how much more should the people of the light also be smart about what they're doing? Not for the same purposes, not even as we're going to see to make more money. By the way, this is not about making money. The steward's not making more money. He's making friends so it's not even about money so in this point but he's just saying the people of light can also be smart about what we do if people of evil are able to do it how much more should we be able to do it so it's a, it's an interesting analogy he uses it's not the only time he tells a parable in which the person in the parable is a bad person i think we've seen some others but it does for us sometimes i think it 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 can be distracting um so i think that's the sort of the the bottom line point Is not that you should be serving money. There's nothing in here. that Again, the steward isn't even motivated by money. He's motivated by desperation to need friends. So he's trying to manipulate people into being his friends. And I think, again, Jesus isn't commending manipulation. He's not commending selfishness. He's not commending dishonesty. But he is saying he was thinking ahead and he was smart about using the money he had to gain him something. Rather than letting money control him, he was actually using money for purposes in the future. Um, And I think for Jesus, he would say, and I know this because he's about to, he would say for us, then we can use things like money, whatever it is, money here is just, I think, an example. We can use things like money, but when we do it, we should do it not just to protect ourselves for tomorrow, not just because we're going to lose a job tomorrow, not just to manipulate people in friendship, but we should use it for eternal things. We should be looking ahead and saying, what do I prioritize? What do I have? And am I using what I have? Am I uh, using what I have in order to further the most important things in my life? And that's when he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself, but not the same reason the steward did. He says, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. I I, I don't know that we need to read this as a specific Sort of picture of how eternity actually works, like there will actually be eternal houses, and we're hoping people will welcome us into their houses. I don't think that'll be necessary. He's just carrying the parable forward. In this parable, the guy was was wanting to be welcomed into temporary dwellings. Jesus is saying we should be the same, except that we should be looking for eternal consequences. We should be using worldly things, you know, things as as crass and low as money. We should be using it for eternal values, because even the people of the dark understand using money for their values. So therefore, we should be shrewd like that. Don't overlook money. Don't think it's beneath you, but use it for eternal things. And here again, I think money is just an example, um, but it is an example. It's going to come up in the next several stories. So that's kind of how I read this. Anybody have any other thoughts um, on this parable? Any any other questions or comments or other ways you see it?
1: I kind of have a question um so well because he says that for the people of this world are more shrewd and dealing with their own kind you know blah 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 so do you think that they like were doing something that wasn't like that or that wasn't shrewd or do you think he's more just like giving them a lesson
0: I think he's saying that probably the temptation is, and, and when we get to some of the other things about the Pharisees who are listening, there may be more here, but it seems like to his disciples he's saying the temptation is to not deal with people of the world. Is to kind of rise is to kind of say we don't we don't need to deal with things as crass as money and he's saying no you can be shrewd they're shrewd about it with their kind maybe you could be shrewd about it with their kind as well um, but for better reasons for different purposes so in a sense they weren't doing something with it because I think they were so I don't know if it's a direct response to something they're doing but I think a general sort of sense of. You could you could be more wise about how the crass things of the world can be used for spiritual and eternal ends. I think it might be what he's saying.
1: That would I guess that would make sense.
0: He goes on. So there is a there is a little flow here. There's a thematic flow on this. So he's he's kind of into this now where he's mentioned money and he's mentioned how you should deal with it as people of the light, people of the light prioritize differently, but can still deal with the things that are here. Um and physical and he goes on to talk about sort of the stewardship idea. So this whole parable was about a steward, someone who's given money in order to do something for the manager for the master and he wasn't doing it well, <coughs> probably dishonestly, and so the master fired him. By the way, there's no indication here the master didn't fire him. I, I, again, it's just a parable, so there isn't a real person here, but it's easy for me to envision that what Jesus is saying is the master commends him, yeah, that was pretty smart, at the same time he's like that was pretty smart because you're fired. You know, so at least they might help you out. You know, I don't, it doesn't say that he's like, now I really want you to work for me because I wouldn't, right? It's hard to imagine a a master would be like, yeah, you just robbed me of more money. Let's keep you on board. That would be a weird result. Anyway, uh, so, but he goes on, Jesus goes on to kind of talk about stewardship a little bit. And he says this, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true widgets? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And what's interesting is sometimes I hear this talked about to, to, to emphasize how important money is in scripture. Actually, this is the opposite. This is actually saying mo- money is not the most important thing. But that just because it's not the most important thing doesn't mean it doesn't matter how you deal with it. Here again, he's like saying to the apostles, look... If you're you don't think just because money's beneath you and it's not spiritual, and it's not a big thing, and you don't have a lot of it, don't think that that means that it doesn't matter what you do with it. Because if you're going to be cavalier and not serious about the money that God has given you, or or that someone else has given you, then what makes you think that God is going to have a lot of confidence in trusting you with bigger things? With things that are more important with things that are more spiritual so i think part of the whole theme from that parable to this one is he's trying to make a connection between our ability to use the things of the world even things that appear that are in fact less important crass less of significance not spiritual using those things for spiritual ends i think he's trying to point out that that's what's important is where your priority is and and if you're if you if you think things are beneath you and so you don't deal with them carefully then don't be surprised that people come along and don't want to give you more important things don't want you to deal with other things i think i see a lot um you know when when uh, just just in my own life experience with some of some of my kids and then with people that i even saw at the apple store you know younger people i think there's even a level of maturity when people start working Where the job they're at they get in their head someday i'm going to work a really important job so what i do at this one doesn't matter and they don't recognize that what they do at this job is going to have a lot of impact on whether someday they're going to have a more important job um, because they just think it's sort of not that important and that's kind of what jesus is saying yeah how do you deal with the stuff that's not that important Um, and recognize that if if people learn from your character that you're not trustworthy with little things then what makes you think they're gonna entrust you with bigger things um and uh and so I think that's that's part of what's going on here, Meredith, yes
1: so it's okay, so then it seems some I'm not sure how like what you're saying and what you said before all makes sense. I'm not sure quite how they go together because it seems like now he's kind of saying like well don't be like that guy because he was you know like dishonest and he couldn't be trusted and maybe that's part of the the thing or maybe he's just going on he made the point with that and he's going on to something else or what do you think
0: i mean it's possible but i i do think that what he's doing is clarifying what we should be like him and how we should be like him and i think in terms of being oh like- okay being dishonest, we shouldn't be like him. But but even here, the way this connects to the way we should be like him is is again the idea that with this crap, this thing that maybe the disciples thought of as crass and low, they should be as wise and shrewd as the steward was, who thought money was more important. Not to be dishonest, but to but to be but to but to not think it's beneath them. It's a little thing, and yet they should treat it with the same trustworthiness and, and honesty that they would everything else. So I, I think it is still connected, but 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 obviously, yes, he doesn't want us to be dishonest or, or lack trustworthiness. That's why I think this parable, it isn't talking about the dishonesty, it's talking about the ability to use what you have for bigger things, to look at what you have and say, what are my priorities? And with them, their priorities are spiritual things. So being honest, being trustworthy is part of it. But what they can learn from this weird, evil, wicked, dishonest steward is they can learn that little things unimportant things can be used for big things i think
1: yeah i guess he's kind of talked like that at other times too a lot of times he'll like take something small and then he'll just broaden it and make it like eternal
0: sure sure yeah anybody else have any other thoughts
1: okay thanks this parable makes a lot more sense
0: well and and I, i i still acknowledge it's 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 an interesting choice for Jesus.
1: <laughs> yeah, then he would start with that, but then he is able to build it and he is and make again, a good contrast.
0: And all I can figure is there's a reason he did it this way, right? He, he when he wants to be provocative, he is. So maybe by by dealing with someone who's so clearly crass and and dishonest and low, he's again forcing the disciples to think about whether they are again dismissing little things and not paying attention to them not being trustworthy with them and that maybe they should because even this low guy was doing something they can learn from and it's not unlike jesus to point out somebody that they would think of as particularly wicked and say here's a good thing you can learn from them because that's also part of what he does yeah. is- He's definitely trying to take people down a notch. And that is that is what we're going to see in some of these stories coming up. It is clear that part of what he's doing in this time is trying to bring at least the Pharisees and maybe some of his own apostles trying to bring people down a peg or two. And that's he doesn't always do that. But he clearly is trying to do that in these stories. And so maybe by talking about someone that everybody agrees is kind of low, maybe that's part of the way he's like, look, you can learn from this low guy. Maybe it's just, again, part of his systematic kind of tearing them down. I, I'll just I'll 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 just pull the, the 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 curtain back a little bit and say one of the things we're going to see in the upcoming stories is that Jesus is going to begin to say over and over and over, your worldly status is completely irrelevant to your status in the kingdom of heaven. You think your worldly status will have a make a difference there, but it doesn't. It makes no difference there. And that's something he's going to say over and over and over. And I think he's trying to bring those who are counting on their worldly power, their worldly wealth, their worldly status. I think he's trying to bring them down to recognize, I can't, I don't, I'm not entitled to things from God just because I have a really good status on this earth. And Jesus gets really clear about that going forward. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah. And I was just thinking about it too. They, kind of have this idea i mean they're really steeped like in like the world i mean like we kind of all are actually um but (laughs) um but yeah the idea those are those people and they act like this and they do that and then they're good because of this and and kind of more black and white in some ways yeah and not really seeing the kingdom they're kind of using the their worldly system to kind of evaluate the kingdom of heaven instead of like the other way.
0: That's good. I think that's good. And now is where we know that the Pharisees are listening into this because now he's going to say something which apparently, based upon the reaction that comes from the Pharisees, is directed at at the Pharisees. It may also apply to his disciples, but they take this very personally. And so they're there. We know that. And number two, probably he meant them to take it personally. So then he says this, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And he could be talking specifically about money, and I think he is. I think though that also money and power are are for a lot of people they're the same thing. People have money because they want power, um, and they see that as being per power is. And so I think the Pharisees are are into both. And so he's but so so but it's an interesting statement to not just say you can kind of split the difference. You know that's fine. Be subservient to money, serve money, let money be your master. That's okay. Just make sure God is more your master. He says, really, you can't. You can only be devoted, like really devoted to one thing. You can only serve one master. At some point, the masters are going to ask different things from you. And then you have to decide who do you love and who do you hate? Who do you? Who are you ultimately going to follow? Because you're going to have to make that decision. You cannot serve both. And this is not directly connected to the parable or the thing he said before but there is this general theme of money and power and status and what are you serving. So the steward it turns out interestingly enough wasn't even serving money, he was just serving his own comfort and in this case he saw that he didn't need money as much as he needed friends. So that's what he went after, right? So there's still this idea of who are you serving? What is what is your what are, what's creating your values and your priorities? What is And if you're serving God, then everything you do should be be pointed towards that. Then you'll be trustworthy with little things. You'll be trustworthy with big things because the issue is you're serving God who's over all of it. But we know here that the Pharisees take this personally because it tells us that in the very next verse. The Pharisees who loved money, and I would say and power, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. So you know how it is when you get caught, you get called out. Uh, in a crowd, one of the ways you can re- respond is to just be dismissive and scornful and pretend the guy doesn't know what he's talking about and he's just stupid. And so that's what they're doing. They're just sneering. They're like, "Oh brother, there's Jesus saying whatever, whatever, whatever." And uh, so he hears them or sees them. He's aware of what's going on, and he says, "You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts." So he says, like, you're sneering, you're you're claiming you don't love money. You're really concerned about other people seeing how righteous and humble and awesome and spiritual you are. He says, and that's that's who you are. That is That is your whole identity. You are made up of people who are just trying to make other people think you're great. The problem is God knows your hearts. God is not fooled by that. You can fool everybody else, but God is not fooled by that. And then it goes on and says, "What people value highly is detestable in God's sight." And this is where He's beginning to hone in on that message: that your status, what you cling to on on the earth for your access, for your power, for your status, God doesn't care. That isn't going to be persuasive to God. So here you are, you justify yourself to other people. That's great. They love you because you seem you're, you're self righteous, and you have a lot of money, and you have a lot of power, and you have a lot of status, and you're seen as leaders. And you are comfortable with that, but the problem is God is not fooled. And so you you value that, and even the people that you're fooling value those things, but God doesn't. In fact, those are detestable to him. So you, you got to have to get this right. You're going to have to flip the switch here because otherwise, you know, you're never going to choose me because you're going to always choose the other master, the power, the status, the the things that you value, looking good to other people. That's going to lead you astray because God is not fooled by that. So who are you really worried about? And this is very similar to things he said in the Beatitudes, right? Where he said, don't, don't do all your prayers and all your holy, righteous things for the, for the benefit of other people because that's as far as that reward goes. God isn't impressed by that. And he's kind of saying the same thing here. Um, you are people of the light, or at least you claim you want to be. Your priorities should be different. Your priorities should be God. Your master should be God. Your values should reflect his values. And if you're following God, they will. But if you're really concerned about these other things, they they won't. Um, So there's going to be more to come on these thoughts, but he's going to take a little detour for a second, or at least it looks like one to me, but I'm interested if you guys see a connection. I don't. But before we get to that, any comments on this general idea of what God, what you value highly, God detests. That that you're just you're you're you need to you need to rethink what's really important to you because you're justifying yourself to other people and you think that's all you need to do, but God isn't fooled. So the next verse it feels disconnected to me. And the problem is, I mean, the problem this is always true. In the Gospels. Sometimes the Gospel writers do sort of do a laundry list of teachings, a laundry list of ideas that they just kind of throw in. And maybe that's what we have here. Maybe the things aren't as connected as I was even saying they were before now. It's possible. What comes up next, I have a hard time connecting anything he said so far. And he says two things which may be connected to each other. Well, that's not completely clear, but they may be. But they're not necessarily connected to anything he said so far. And then he goes back to what he's been talking about, I think. So uh, I think these are important points. We'll cover them. If you see a connection I don't see, uh, I'd love to hear it by all means, because I might just be missing it. But this is the next thing he says. He says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. First of all, I feel a little bit like I'm culturally missing things in this verse. I don't know what it means that everyone is forcing themselves into it. I I don't know if that means that people are trying to pretend they're part of it if everybody's really excited about Jesus all of a sudden. And so they've got this huge following. I don't know if that's what he's referring to uh, or if he's saying that the Pharisees and their self-justification, self-righteousness, it's like they're trying to force themselves in instead of actually having access. I'm not clear on what he's saying here, but the thing that is clear of what he's saying, and I'm not sure why, again, he's talking about the law all of a sudden, but what is clear is that he's saying that the, the law is not going away, that the, the the Pharisees, one of their, their raps on him, one of the reasons they want to kill him, one of the, the charges they want to bring against him is that he flouts the law, that he says it doesn't matter, that he's what, what Paul will later refer to as antinomian, or we will, uh, as antinomian, that, that, they, that he's actually opposed to the law. And so he's clarifying here, that's, that's not where I'm coming from at all. I, I The law, I mean, he's God, so it's his law. So he's like, no, the law is never gonna disappear. It's always important. It's got a very specific place. Now, what we find out later is that Jesus didn't come to get rid of the law. He didn't come to wipe it away. He didn't come to say that doesn't matter anymore. He came to fulfill it. He came to be the essence of it, and in that sense, the old law is just a shadow of what Jesus is, but Jesus, as the fulfillment of it, is not saying the law is bad or that the law is no longer important. He's simply saying, I am the law now. I am Jesus. I am the fulfillment. The law was all about me anyway, so the shadows passed, the sign marks are passed, Um and, and this is where we are now. So it's kind of like, I've talked before about the, the law being like a, a literal signpost. So you have a sign that directs you to Santa Fe and Santa Fe is your destination. If you stop at the sign and don't reach Santa Fe, you're not only not getting to Santa Fe, but you're also not even fulfilling the sign's purpose, right? You, you can worship the sign so much that you defeat the entire purpose for the sign by not going to Santa Fe. When you get to Santa Fe, There's a sense in which you can say the sign is no longer needed, but there's also a sense in which you can say, assuming that the the city doesn't ever take it down, that that sign will always be there. That sign will always point to Santa Fe. And I think that's what he says about the law. The law will always point to Jesus. It's not going away. And it is important and it is valuable. So this is just a little refutation of what the Pharisees are trying to charge him with. And he doesn't get into all that about him being the fulfillment here. He does in other places. Um, But we know that's what he's referring to. That, the, that they, Don't worry, I'm not opposed to the law, he's saying. I'm not erasing everything that your history and your legacy and your lineage and your forefathers told you. I am exactly right in line with everything they told you. In fact, I am the fulfillment of that. It's where he's going to go. So why is he saying that right here? I'm not sure, um, but it's an important point. So we won't ignore it, but I don't know how it fits everything or if it's just a thing that he said around this time because the Pharisees are there. Um, but the, that's the point though. Well, it's
2: also, it could be connected to what he's just talking about is they would say, you know, he says, no one can serve two masters, you either serve God or money, and they would say they serve the law, which is God. And he's saying that they're leaving out, he's saying there's, you don't get to take out the parts that don't help you in your pursuit of money and power, every part of the law will be retained. So if you say you serve the law, you must serve it completely. And they know they're not doing that.
0: Well, that's really good. I, I totally haven't thought of that. And I think that's a really strong possibility, Lorraine. Yeah, that makes sense. That might be the connection. That they're that you're right. Their temptation is like, no, we serve the law. And he's like, yeah, but do you serve every jot and tittle? Do you serve every point of it? Because you seem to discard some of it. Um, yeah, that's really good. And that actually does that does fit. That's possible. I like that. Well,
1: yeah, no, I like that. And then kind of like going with that, I mean, because he was saying, you know, like, God sees, and it seems like they're kind of, like, maybe disconnecting, like, God and Jesus. So it, like, brings it back together, you know, about Jesus being God and his Father and stuff, which they don't seem to want to accept.
0: Yeah, no, that's good, too. And even to draw that, the the, the two things you guys together— said is also that right their law they think they're following the law but there really is their law is their popularity so whatever whatever part of the law they can follow that makes them look spiritual they're really good with whatever part of the law they can get away with not following that no one else notices they're also good with and and jesus is pointing out a uh, god sees and 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 god is aware of the whole law so he's you're not fooling him again so that that actually is good i think you guys might have hit it that this is just another reiteration that god is not fooled Um, by anything that you're doing. You know, you can fool everyone else. They think you're carrying out the law great, but he knows you're not. Yes, Meredith.
1: So grammatically, how would like, and everyone is forcing their way into it be, is forcing their way into the kingdom of God?
0: Yeah, that's what he's saying. And I don't know what it means.
3: That's so weird. (laughs) Yeah. I i i prefer constrained like everyone is constrained to it i went nerdy and looked up the text That's and so. i think the text the the original text i think works better is constrained personally but
1: the, that it doesn't that really seems totally different
3: to me yeah but it's
1: no, I was actually going to look at it but I didn't yeah. have any other options, but no, I, that that actually could make sense, but that seems so different than what it says
3: here. They're basically yeah. so not to get too far in the rabbit hole. They're basically taking that verb force and making it active as opposed to
0: passive. Well, and the the so what what are you looking at that's giving you the constrained option? <laughs> uh
3: basically that word that they're translating as uh everyone tries that enter it by force that clause that word they're translating in that manner the most common usage of it is constrain. yeah but i I bet
2: the way they're i bet the way the reason they're translating it that way is because it doesn't make any sense to say that you are constrained to a place
3: Oh, no, you're constrained to
0: the and good the news law. of the kingdom of God. Well, so, or, oh. or the law. So it actually changes the pronoun in the antecedent too. So forcing yeah. their way into it makes it the, the pronoun for kingdom of God. Constrained mm. it makes it the pronoun for the law. So here's the thing I would say. The translators, and I'm not saying they're right. This is just where my brain is working this through. The translators in the NIV have chosen force for a reason, um, and and what's interesting is they didn't choose something that's easier, right? It almost would be easier to understand if they said constrained by it. So I'm curious what in the context or in their understanding led them to say force. So this would be one of those areas where, I, absolutely, your your all of your all's homework if you want to is to go find uh, you know interlinear translations, look it up in a bunch of different translations, look it up in Strong's concordance. Look it up in um, uh, what's his face's literal uh, literal translation. Suddenly, I forget his name. But to, but to go through all those resources and see what you know why why some translators choose forced and some translators choose constrained. Um, and and either and it's possible. Certainly, everyone is constrained by the law. Makes some sense. I'm not sure it's that much easier to understand. Yeah. I, I I think that's plausible, and I appreciate your bringing in the other uh, translation here. I I have a lot of questions about the choices that people are making on this translation, and I didn't look it up earlier, so I'm uh, you're ahead of me on the game on that one.
2: I guess well, if, if he's I trying to is... emph- if he's trying to emphasize that they can't be selective about the law, the parts of the law that they adhere to, then it could make sense to say everyone is held to the same constraint to it, held to the same standard of the law.
0: And it is possible, as I look at it, because he does start with the law and the prophets. Then he talks about the kingdom of God. So it is possible that he's going back and saying, everyone is constrained by the law. Even though the good news is being preached, everyone is constrained by the law. Yeah, that 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 works. That, 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 that works. It's easier to understand than forced, which again, is why I go back to the question of, why did the niv translators choose a translation which is harder to understand there must be something they felt and i I have issues with some of the niv translations, so i'm not saying they're right but there must have been something they felt compelling about using forced instead of constrained constrained so
1: then what i mean would it be then if it was like with constrained would it be everyone is being forced And
0: to their way into it, and it
1: would
0: be the law. Everyone is constrained by the law, is what it would be saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as far as
1: how is, but how is forcing their way into it? How would that be that? My
0: guess is like like think about the English language. We have words that are the same words, but they mean very different things. So, if someone's translating something and they come across the word "wind," how do they know if it's wind or wind? Well, they only know based upon translation. I mean, based upon context. And if they're translating it into another language where wind and wind don't don't have the same letters, someone would be like you saying, How do they get, how do they get this word from this word? So my guess is constrain and force are both the same word, but they have different meanings based upon the context. And so they have a choice of how to do it. Or, or it's something even more nuanced that the word actually means something about restrictions and and confinement and that it can be translated either as to force something or to constrain something it's just to, to me that that happens all the time in translation that two words one word can can have that's why translations tricky one word can have multiple meanings depending on the context so it wouldn't it wouldn't have to be that forced is the right word at all it could just be constrained but they just had to choose between two equal options based upon the word.
1: It's there super is, clear now.
0: Yeah. There is some intuitive connection between forced and constrained, right? If you're if you're constrained, you are sort of forced into a particular box. So I can see how one word might cover both those ideas but not a But that, it
1: says everyone is forcing their way. It's not well, that they're forced. So well, it that, seems like it's more like their choice and something that's being brought upon them.
0: That's the translation thing. So the syntax is totally different in the Greek. So imagine they just this is not exactly how it is, but just to make a simple example, imagine the words that they have are essentially everyone they they just have these words. Everyone constrained into it. And they have to decide how that goes in our syntax. Oh, okay. Right. So it doesn't it doesn't necessarily follow our syntax enough to even they, they have to add, they have to decide if it's a gerund or a, or an adjective or an adverb. That happens actually a fair, fair amount. Translation is a very complicated process <laughs> for everybody in every in every field. <laughs> it's uh, if we have such good translators, we have people who are so expert at it, honestly, that it that we are very lucky. And it's easy to forget how hard it
1: is. But that- is um is like ancient Greek a lot different than like modern Greek?
0: It is. It is. Yeah. And m- more
3: different the further back you go. So even like 2,000-year-old Greek and 1,000-year-old Greek are pretty different. And 1,000-year-old oh. Greek and modern Greek are also very different so like and there's a common the through line between but... all of them
0: it is. oh yeah absolutely think about middle english and old english and how different they all get but the other thing even think about this in english and this is another translator difficulty that's true in most languages but again very true in english and very true in greek very true of, of really complex societies think about somebody trying to translate american language a hundred years from now okay and, and let's assume that it's someone who's it's changed a lot and maybe they're not even in America, they're in France, and they're trying to translate American languages from today, 100 years from now. Here's the thing. Let's say they have certain artifacts that they're using to translate because they don't have everything. And and remember that in the ancient world, they didn't have digital and and everything. They have a lot less things to work with to translate. Well, the problem is, if I said translate American, we already know this is a huge country. So you've got Southern, and you've got Southwestern, and you've got, uh, you know, kind of Spanglish, and you've got you know, just a lot of different variations of it. On top of that, you have different language for different time, uh, different occupations. So if you pick up a legal book, and you're trying to figure out how to translate English from a legal book, you would be very confused if you thought that every American spoke this way. Right? You'd be like, that's, that's, oh,
1: it. I'm confused now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, the, what's, the reason I bring this up is because for many years, the Greek New Testament baffled ancient Greek uh, translators, people who translated ancient Greek, because it didn't, it wasn't like other Greek that they were translating from the same time period. And they thought that maybe it was some kind of, they, 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 they thought of some kind of stylized Greek for scripture. Turned out that no, it's just that most of what had lasted, that they had learned to translate from, was legal and academic uh, scrolls. And that the New Testament Greek is written in very common grocery store list language. And it wasn't until they found literally a grocery list, that's one of the things that helped them out, was until they started finding really common things that they realized, oh, the Greek is written in a really common language. But that just, again, goes to the complexity of translation. You don't even know maybe the same time period, and it's a very different language all within the same culture. But that happens in any any complex society. Cool.
1: Thanks. And my
0: very smart son is nodding. So, so far, I have not exposed myself as a fraud in all this. So I'll stop
1: there.
3: Yes. The, the St. John's scholars. Yes. yes.
0: yes sorry, sorry to pull you into the language problem.
1: Oh, no. I was interested in it.
0: Joseph's ancient Greek is probably better than mine right now because it's been a long time since I've done any translating so um okay shall we press on that was all good shall we press on (laughs) sure this next one at first sounded to me like another random detour but it's possibly an example of the kind of laws that they're being squishy about right so if he's like you're not following all the laws it's possible that this next statement is just an example of that Uh, otherwise it does seem like a little random teaching and this is what he says anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery so this can get people in a lot of trouble um, we uh, we have so many weird theologies about divorce and and i have literally encountered a pastor who was teaching people that if they were married they needed to divorce the person if they were remarried they needed to divorce the person they were married to and go back to the person they had originally divorced or else they would be committing adultery with the person that they married so we're not i don't think that's correct and we're not going to get into all the details but i will say a couple of things one is if this is an example of the kind of laws that they're not supporting we do actually know historically that divorce was extraordinarily easy for uh i want to say for those with the right status because that's the truth for for people who had the means and the money and the power divorce was extraordinarily easy and there's even a rabbinical conversation in which one of the rabbis and that wouldn't be now but it would be not many years after this moment with jesus there's a rabbinical conversation where one of the rabbis says if If the woman displeases the man in any way, at any time, he may divorce her. Um, Some people call this the burn toast argument because they say it literally means if she burned his toast for breakfast, which would be hard to do back then. But if she burned his toast for breakfast, that he could divorce her. All he had to do was get a a writ. And, And if that's the situation in the context then yes, you could see that the Pharisees are probably handing out divorces. They have to do a certificate, but that's why I say, if you have the status, it's easy to get. If your friend is a Pharisee, you can get divorced anytime you want. And and I think that's what he's objecting to. You're making it very easy for your buddies to just cast off women as if they don't matter at all, just because they displeased them. The only other thing I will say, and we'll get more into this when we get to Paul, is that... A divorce is very interesting throughout Scripture because as much as we want to make clear, hard, and fast rules about it, Scripture keeps being smushy about it. So it keeps changing. So in the Old Testament, there's no exception for divorce, period. In the Gospels, there's an exception for—well, and then later in the Old Testament, God says, okay, that's fine. I will let you divorce sometimes, but doesn't say why. And he says it's a concession because you guys are evil. Then in the New Testament, Jesus says this here, that you can get divorced for infidelity. That sounds obvious, but that was not part of the law originally that we know. And then later on, Paul says you can also get divorced if somebody uh, is an unbeliever and they leave you. And so if they're an unbeliever and they leave you, you can divorce them. So what happens is we keep getting new specific exceptions. Add to that the fact that the church traditionally to this day, and I think it's appropriate we do, also makes allowance for abuse. If you're being abused, you can divorce your husband. If you're being abused, you can divorce your wife. Many people also add to that addiction or alcoholism. My point in all this is divorce is something that Scripture doesn't give us a hard line on as much as we'd like it to. And it, it, even though there's strong words, every time divorce is spoken of, it's always spoken of strongly as if, well, unless this is the reason you can't do it, the problem is the reason keeps changing. So I don't want to go into all the details. When we get to Paul talking about it, I'll tell you kind of why I think that is. But the bottom line is this. The bottom line is that we know that there are exceptions. Jesus gives one here for infidelity. But what we do know is that divorce should be a very serious thing and it should never be handed out as a favor from a Pharisee to his buddy. And I think that is what he's referring to here. So anyway, just wanted to throw that in there.
2: So it seems like most of the time that we can, I mean, I don't think, I think this is oversimplification, but it does seem like the exceptions and or the rules around divorce are often put in place to protect the more vulnerable in the relationship, which historically would have been the woman. and so that seems true everywhere except here where it says the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So if she, her husband had divorced her because she was annoying, then there's no man who can come and, and marry her and sort of restore her to a home and, and take care of her again. So that's the only place where it feels like it runs counter to that.
0: In last, what was happening, And again, I, I, I ran across this somewhere else because I don't remember where, but I've read this at some point. So I don't know how 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 reliable this is or if we know this was happening. But you can conceive of power structures as happening, unless what was happening is that people were essentially swapping wives. If they were like, "Well, you divorce your wife and sure. I'll my wife, and then I'll marry your wife, and you can marry her wife," and and that could be what Jesus is also trying to put it on. He's saying, "Look, if you marry that person that just got divorced, you're committing adultery." So don't don't stop using that as an excuse to just take other people's wives. Um, so okay. I, can see that. I can see that being the the rationale here. Yes, Meredith
1: um well it also seems like connected to with the thoughts before just in the sense of like well first of all it's connecting like jesus and like with god and the intention from the beginning like of the laws you know and how jesus and the like the attitudes like expands that so much more and just the idea with the um with them being like so focused on the law and like this is really what the law is about which is i guess what you guys have been saying but yeah i I mean it just it does connect like it seems like a lot in that sense
0: no i agree i think that's good i think that's good um we'll move on from this because it's not really the main topic but the only other thing i'll say i'll just (laughs) affirm something Lorraine said which is that You can even argue that when God says, okay, that's fine, I will let you have a certificate of divorce as a concession because you're evil, that what he meant is, I have to do it to protect the woman. Because when you're not divorcing her, you're becoming violent with her. And so even that, it could be that that whole point was, again, to protect the more vulnerable. And you're right. I think that's almost always the the caveat and the rule here. Um, Okay, cool. Let's go on. Luke 16. All right. So this is... (laughs) this is a contentious parable, and one of the things that's contentious about this parable is whether it's a parable or not. Um, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this, and I want you to pay attention. We've read a lot of parables now. So as I read this, I want you to listen, and I want you to note all the differences between this and other parables. In other words, is there anything in this that is unique that makes it stand out as possibly not a parable i'll tell you my thoughts on whether it is or not but i just want you to see the argument there's there are things about this that some people say are so different from other parables that it makes us question whether it's a parable and so i want you as i read this i want to listen i want to see which which of those you identify or if you do all right luke 16 there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day Uh, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he said to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, you remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to there Okay, so what does anything stand out to you that is different from other parables?
2: Well, the beggar has a name.
0: That's a big one. People no other <laughs> parable has, has a named person in it. Which is there's
2: also, there's actually, maybe this is just, it's connected to the previous passage. Maybe this is just lost to time. There's no frame that tells us that Jesus is telling this story to anyone and no explanation right. after and no question or reaction from anyone he's talking
0: to. Yep. There's also a lot of times, geez, we know something's a parable. Why? Because it says, and then Jesus told them this parable. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. There's none of that. And like you pointed out, Lauren there's not even softer frames that are like, and then he told them this to, to explain this or explain that, or, you know, it's just not, you're right. It It is different in that sense. He just launches into this, this story. Okay, good. What are any other differences that you guys know?
1: I don't know that this is a difference from other parables, but um, I just think it's interesting with all the, like, reference to, like, Abraham and how he's, like, you know, like, part of it. In some ways, it's kind of, like, personal and not.
0: Yeah. Well, Abraham would be another named person, which is weird, but I think you also hit upon another thing. Most of the parables are about mundane things, right? Farmers, shepherds, you know, uh, you know, with dad and his kids. Parables aren't typically, even though they're often about the kingdom of God, the the framework of the parable is not typically about heaven and hell and Abraham and it, in that sense, it's very different too. It's overtly spiritual in nature. And the very point of most of the parables is that the spiritual nature is sort of covert. It's kind of hidden underneath this very mundane story. This is just this really overt spiritual story, which, again, may or may not be true, may or may not be a parable. It's just kind of this overt story. So let me ask you this, whether it's a parable or not, why do you think we get the name of Lazarus, but we don't get the name of the rich man?
3: because Because he
1: doesn't want to use one of the pharisees names that are standing right in front of him
3: (laughs) it could be because
1: it's aligned
2: (laughs) with all of the first shall be last and upsetting the power structures the man who had all the status and access in life has no name in this story
0: that's right the whole point of this story right is your status in life does you no good here. And have you? did you notice, I find this fascinating, whether it's a parable or not, it's brilliant, because do you notice that even after he's in Hades, he still treats Lazarus like his servant? It's not just that he wants help, but he's like, send Lazarus to me to serve me. And then he's like, send Lazarus to my brothers to serve them. It's clear that this rich man not only is really not getting what's happening here, <laughs> but he's he's not even learned anything he's not even aware. He still thinks he's entitled. He still thinks Lazarus should serve him because his status is better than Lazarus's. And part of the point Abraham's making is, yeah, that that whole thing on earth, that's not how it works here. And and so whether it's a parable or not, I think it was necessary that the story be set in a non-earthly place because the whole point is it looks different in the kingdom of heaven than it does here. I will tell you that I personally think it's still a parable, and I'll tell you that I think the reason Lazarus has a name is for two reasons. I'll tell you the second one later, but the first one is I think he has a name for exactly the reason you said. It wants to emphasize that in the kingdom of heaven, Lazarus, the poor man would be remembered, and the rich man who thinks he's entitled to be remembered is not. Now Abraham still calls him son, which I think just indicates he's he's his Jewish connections. I think this is a Jewish rich man. I think Abraham's named again because he is tying it back to the law and to spiritual things, and and showing that even the patriarch recognizes the status, you know, on earth does not equal status in in the kingdom. Um, one other clarifying thing I will point out is that when it says Hades, Hades to us, partly because we're more familiar. The, you know we probably think of uh, Greek, uh Greek or Roman, I don't remember which one it is, Greek or Roman mythology where Hades is hell. So you have oh, Greek. Okay, Greek. Hades doesn't mean hell. Um, Hades is the Greek word that is used for the Hebrew word shale. And shale just means grave, literally. So this story doesn't necessarily talk about the rich man being in hell. I mean I think that's the implication because he's in torment. But, but it's not talking specifically about the rich man being in hell and the hell being Hades. It says he's in Hades. One way to read this is that Lazarus is also in Hades, that Hades is just sort of this, some people read it this way, this holding place for, for the afterlife before you actually are, are in heaven or hell, um, that it's kind of limbo. Um, and I, all that is to say... That one of the reasons I think of this as a parable is because if it's an actual story of what happens after we die, I don't understand it at all. <laughs> it's just so weird. I don't envision that people from hell are talking to people in heaven. I just don't envision that there's a, you know, that there's, that that's how it works. So even if it's like God, an element of truth to it, it still seems like Jesus is intending to give us a, a story, a kind of mythical feel to things to make a really important point. Um, and then the final clincher on all this is this story. There's a similar story in the Greek world. Um, obviously it's not Abraham and it's not identical, but it's similar enough that it makes me think Jesus may have just in fact uh, taken, taken a story that they already knew and reworked it uh, for his purposes. And I don't see anything wrong with Jesus doing that. That, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but,
2: it's interesting too because the last, uh, the last little thing that Abraham tells the rich man is kind of like what Jesus, when Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah, like I've given you all these things and you're still not figuring it out. Yep.
3: Uh,
2: and then he foreshadows that he's gonna die and or he's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead and they're still not gonna get it.
0: So yep. I think he's mostly talking about himself, but it is interesting he mentioned that raising Lazarus from the dead because here's my other thought: what if he uses the name Lazarus? So first of all, the word Lazarus means something like, uh, it, it's, it's something like God is with me, or God loves me, or God honors me. I don't remember, but it's like that. It's a, it's a very sort of spiritual name. So it makes sense to use a name like that, to honor the person that is dishonored in our world. But what if he also uses the name Lazarus because he knows that he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead? And when he does, not that he's saying that's the same Lazarus, because it's not, because that Lazarus does not serve a rich man. But what if he's using the name Lazarus so that when he raises Lazarus from the dead, people will be reminded of this story and say, oh, he even said if someone came back from the dead, we wouldn't believe him. And look what he just did. He raised someone from the dead. So I don't know that that's the case, but knowing that Jesus sometimes knows the future and sometimes appears not to. And that's all a mystery to me. But knowing that he can know the future, it sure seems to me that it would be fascinating if he uses this name specifically, because very soon, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And he wants people to remember this story when he does. So I think that's fascinating. Yeah, there's obviously... points to the story one is again that reiteration your status on earth has nothing to do with your status in heaven so be careful don't be entitled you're not entitled you were entitled on this world you are not entitled to anything from god and the second point is right you think that if someone came back from the dead that people would listen but you know what it's going to happen and people aren't going to listen and lazarus is a mini example of that and jesus of course is the penal not the penultimate the ultimate example of that uh so uh, sue and then i think meredith had something too but sue go ahead first well,
3: that was what i was going to say that it's it's jesus rising from the dead that people are ignoring that's lazarus right. is just he's just the little, little guy but jesus
0: is the right.
3: the one the true
0: that's right well even when lazarus <laughs> raises from the dead it's all a vehicle for jesus to say i am the resurrection and the life and yeah. he of me will never die and and so i think it is but i I like that chain even that he tells a story with the name lazarus in it so that when he raises lazarus you're thinking of the story so that then when he raises from the dead if you're paying attention at all you can make all these connections and say i guess i should be listening to him (laughs) but of course people didn't and meredith i think you were going to say something too
1: oh no i just unmuted it because i figured i'd have like 15 questions Oh, right. I, I love it oh it's so though i mean it's i don't want to stay clever because it's like god but you know it's so just the way he intertwines everything and how i mean eerie that would be when he does la- raise lazarus from the dead and just like i mean the Pharisees like he's totally like speaking to things in their head but he's like not like saying it you know like out loud he's doing it in a very kind of yeah i don't know covered way and just yeah
0: it's so clear right that the 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 fair the rich the rich man is just like these pharisees they feel entitled even the fact and i think that's why abraham is part of this story even the fact that it's abraham who is saying to the rich man you're not entitled to cross this chasm. You're not entitled to have Lazarus serve you. You're not entitled to any of these things. Even though I call you son, I acknowledge that you're one of my descendants. I acknowledge that you're Jewish. You're not entitled to any of this. And this poor guy that you treated like dirt, he is entitled to it. And again, we don't, he doesn't get into why he got to go. It wasn't because he was poor. We can assume if this is a real story, it's because he had faith if it's a story it doesn't jesus doesn't have to explain it that's not the point but but it's just i think that that it is clear that that yeah he's talking to the pharisees and he's not naming them but he's naming abraham because abraham's connection to them is something they're very proud of and then he's naming lazarus because that's the kind of person they don't honor and he's saying you got to you, you you can't yeah it doesn't matter your status here will not matter there so you need to be thinking about that and what that means It's
1: so cool, though, too, because, I mean, he's doing it in such, yeah, like kind of like a respectful way to them, you know, and just kind of a way that they actually hopefully can hear, you know, and listen, you know, and just the, the way he's like connecting like everything to, I mean, all the way, you know, like with abraham and everything i mean it's so like huge it just if they're listening it must be like mind-blowing
0: <laughs> i think they probably are reacting to it a little bit the way they reacted to his statement about money you know they're probably sneering yeah. they're defensive again there are pharisees who are part of the church so so some somebody gets moved you know by these words yeah but some of them obviously are not.
1: Well, and obviously it's good for everyone else to hear too, because oh, they're kind of like looking up to the, they're kind of like, okay, we have the Pharisees, we have Jesus. What's going on here?
0: 100%. It's all, it's all, he, he always speaks knowing who his audience is, but he always speaks also knowing that his audience is everybody. So that's also true. Yeah. Um uh yeah, So then he goes on. And I think this next verse is very connected because after he's making the point about your status here doesn't affect your status there and also that if you don't you won't you won't believe even if someone comes to the life if you don't want to believe you're not going to believe that's not the, that's not the deal so sending lazarus wouldn't help um, but but then he also i think he begins to address another issue that comes up in this parable and that's you really should be mindful of how you're treating the guy under your table <laughs> should he be under your table and that's when he that's when he says this jesus said to his disciples Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. Look, there's going to be temptations. There's going to be struggles. There's going to be times that things are going to come your way. They're going to mess up. But then he says this. Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. Little ones could mean children, but this is not one of those moments where it specifically tells us he's talking to children or about children. I think to Jesus, it's fair to think that anybody who is in the oppressed, anybody who is disadvantaged, anybody who is outcast is a little one. You know, he has a sort of affectionate, we've seen him that way with the outcast. He has this affectionate, you know, paternal, perhaps fraternal, however you want to think of it, you know, sense with them. And so I think he could just be referring back to people like Lazarus. Lazarus would be one of his little ones. He's like, look, be watch how you treat people because you're not entitled. Because your status here doesn't carry over to your status there. Because the guy eating the table scraps under your table might, in fact, be someone who's in the kingdom of heaven. Man, you should watch yourselves. You should be alert. Because if you're treating people as less than worthy as less than sacred if you're treating and maybe it's children but maybe it's anybody if you're treating people as less than sacred you you might you got to be careful about that that's not right it's wrong and therefore you're being careless with them and you're causing them to stumble you're leading them astray and of course again this directly goes to the pharisees because they are responsible for leading people right so if they're like you're not if you're not careful if you're giving all your attention to your buddies and the power structure, and you're not really reaching out to the poor and the impoverished and the women and all these people, then you're leading them astray. You're causing them to stumble because you're not giving them the best of your teachings that you should be giving them. Um, and, And so watch yourselves. And he says it to his disciples too, because they are going to be, ironically, in many ways, in the position the Pharisees are in now, meaning they are going to be the leaders of the church. They are going to be the people at the top of the power structure. And so I think he's saying to them, too, as a, as a precursor for the future, watch yourselves. Be careful. Make sure that you don't get callous the way that, that these Pharisees have. Make sure that you don't start feeling entitled and thinking the people around you aren't entitled. Instead, start acting like the, the Lazaruses around you are entitled to your love. Start acting like they're entitled to your care. They're entitled to you exalting them. That's really, I think, that you know, kind of where he's going with all this.
2: I think, you know, in an age of celebrity pastors and where everyone wants to be, where it feels like a position of power and respect and importance, that this is just a good, sobering warning and reminder of the gravity of the position of leadership and the responsibility that it is, It is as much as it's an honor or privilege, it's a responsibility to the people. They don't, they're not, you're not entitled to their servitude. They're entitled to yours if you're in that position.
0: Yeah, that's really good. And Jesus makes that point specifically with his disciples lots of times. And it will be one of the last things he does at the last supper is make that point again. So yeah, that's really good.
1: good. Well, I think it's cool too, because like, I mean, he calls them little ones and we kind of see that as like a term of affection, but I'm sure like the people in power see them as little whatever and it must have been like really kind of like edifying and encouraging for the people that weren't you know the pharisees to see him you know just making that distinction which he has been doing but yeah
0: i I agree i agree
2: but when uh and i know uh when Lorian uh mentioned this it reminded me of uh of uh posts i've seen on facebook several times where it says that uh there's often this uh you know joke going around in the culture about what what you would do if you had if you knew you only had twenty four hours more left to live, and a lot of people you know uh would say that they would you know they would live it up they'd spend lots of money they'd eat expensive food and and Jesus washed feet,
0: yeah, yeah, that's good that's good you know there's kind of a troubling example I just heard in the car on the way over here. Um, While well, I was listening to a podcast, yeah, I was in the car. It was irrelevant, but uh, something that I just heard recently, kind of a troubling example of how we really have to be careful. And it's it's uh, it's kind of a series of events. I'll try. I'll, I'll make this really quick. But so the, the whole QAnon thing, you know, part of part of the QAnon conspiracy is that all all the people you disagree with are evil, and they're they're into sex, child sex trafficking, and and drinking the blood of children to stay young, and It's all very ridiculous, and it's all terrible. It doesn't help us get anywhere. But so much of, unfortunately, so the QAnon itself started in the secular world, but so much of it was adopted by self-proclaimed Christian prophets and leaders, and who began sharing that this was the truth, and this was the reality, and this is the way things are. And here's where, though, this this is what I heard that's really disconcerting. There's there's a movie that's come out recently about child sex trafficking, and it is just a uh, it is just a recording of a true story. It goes through an actual story, and and it's and it's put out by an organization who is actually heavily involved in in um, overcoming child sex trafficking, and and there's nothing political about this movie at all, and yet there's a lot of reaction to this movie from people saying, well. This looks like a QAnon vehicle. It's not. has nothing to do with QAnon people, but because of the way that that the prophets and the Christians who who misled people with QAnon have 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 tainted the whole story of child sex trafficking. Now, when there's somebody actually doing something about it, it's being dismissed, and and it is like the little ones are being. Overlooked in all this because it's now been made a political thing, and now it, there's the, the, and 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 some of this lands at the feet of some of the so-called Christian prophets and pastors who who have pushed QAnon for the last several years, and so that to me is just kind of a stark example of how now we can't even do what we need to do because we've shot ourselves in the foot, and we're ha- we can't even help the little ones, the most defenseless, because we've shot ourselves in the foot. By lowering the credibility of any of this. And so that was that was just on the way over here. I heard that. And that was kind of a bummer. Um, so there you go. Now I've given you all something to be bummed out about. Um, so let's let's read one or two more verses. And yeah, so we don't end on that. Let's read one or two more verses and then we'll wrap up uh the evening. Um, the next one again, if it's connected, uh, is interesting to me because it could be connected in a really interesting way. The very next verse says, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. So what I'm thinking is he's just come off of saying <laughs> if someone causes a little one to stumble, they're, they're 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 worthy of great judgment. Well, what if what he's saying now is okay? But when someone causes you to stumble, here's how I want you to respond to them: first, rebuke them, let them know, hey, that wasn't cool, that wasn't good. But then he goes on: if they repent, forgive them. And it does seem very Jesus-like to me that he would be really strong about the judgment somebody's worthy of and then turn around and say, but it's not your job to bring that judgment. It's your job to correct them, let them know what they've done to you. But then if they forgive, if they repent, forgive them. Just forgive them. Don't worry about, you don't tie a millstone around their neck. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you forgive them. And this is on a personal level. This is not getting into civil, you know, there's a place obviously for, 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 uh, crime and punishment in the civil categories but but personal level here he says if they repent forgive them and then he goes further he says even if they sin against you 7 times in a day and 7 times come back to you saying i repent you must forgive them you know that 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 i've never noticed that before that he says in a day because that's really poignant i mean if someone keeps sinning and repenting over and over in one day it's very hard for me to keep forgiving them <laughs> cuz i'm like you didn't even give enough time to to forget <laughs> This this feels ridiculous. I I think the implication is genuine repentance. I I think, you know, how you know, I don't know. But I think that's the implication because he does say if they repent. Um, Although here he just says, if they say I repent, you must forgive them. So anyway, my point, though, is I think it's fascinating that he's like, these people need to be judged, will be judged. You should be careful. Don't become these people. But then he also says, if someone sins against you, that's fine. Correct them. But then if they repent, forgive them. And that's your job. Your job is not to tie the millstone around their neck. Your job is to forgive them if they repent and to do it as often as they do. So yes, Meredith, you had a thought.
1: Oh, no. I mean, I guess you just kind of said that because you were talking about the, like the, if they repent, but it seems like, yeah, the point is that it's not your job to to enact revenge or justice.
0: Yeah. And I think Jesus is, I think one one thing you learn when you read the gospels is Jesus is 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 reasonable and commonsensical as well. And and although he challenges us to love in really stark, non-common sense ways, kind of unreasonable ways, I think it's also true that if you know, if, if you had someone who was clearly just being manipulative and abusive and saying sorry and they really didn't mean it at all, and I, I think Jesus would say, Yeah, you don't have to keep. Pretending they mean it.
2: <laughs> so, well, and it's specific to injury against ourselves. Like yeah. he's not saying if they injure a, a bunch of these little ones and then tell you that they're sorry, then you should, you know, smooth that over, forgive on behalf of the people they hurt. Um, Agreed. It and is specifically and, if they injure
0: you. And again, it's not saying anything about civil responsibilities. You know, one of the differences. I actually had a someone asked me a question just today on Facebook. Um, uh, I won't get into the details, but they basically were asking a question of how come in the Old Testament there's these really strong laws that are written to the Israelites about protecting women, but in the New Testament there's no laws about that. And the answer is really obvious, because in the Old Testament, they were a nation that was a theocracy that had the ability to make and pass and enforce laws. And in the New Testament, they're an oppressed minority, and laws don't mean anything at all. They have no relevance to them in terms of how they treat each other. And so I think, you know, that that's why I think the things written here in the New Testament, unlike things that are written to Israel in the Old Testament, are not about civil justice. They're not about how the government should operate, unless that's specifically mentioned, as it is a couple times by Paul. But otherwise, this is our personal interaction. So yeah, it's still, it's still government still has responsibility to enact justice. That's clear. Um, And it doesn't even say, I mean, really, again, God will take care of the judgment. So if they repent and receive his grace, then obviously he forgives them. But if they're manipulating you, well, God's not going to be fooled by that either. So that, that judgment will still come. Um, Okay. Let's actually wrap up there. Well, and go
1: ahead oh sorry well no i was just thinking about what you're just saying and also too i mean he's not trying to tell them you know how to how to be a theocracy or how to 100 percent. you know yeah whatever but he's trying to make He's trying to show them the difference between like the kingdom of earth and the kingdom of heaven, and like make that clear and who he is. So, yep. no, I like that. That
0: yes, that and I think all sense. of it, a lot of it, is coming down to this basic idea of stop being entitled. <laughs> you know what you think you're entitled to on earth? That's that's fine. You're enjoying that, but just recognize God isn't part of that. He's not part of that system, and so that might affect how you live. You know, even in terms of forgiving people, even in terms of how you treat people who are disadvantaged from you, you know, all those things, be mindful of the fact that you, your, your status here, it means nothing to God. It, this is what Paul means when he says things like God is no respecter of persons. That's what he means. God doesn't care about your status here on earth. He doesn't care that you're rich. He doesn't care that you're a powerful leader. He doesn't care that you're a celebrity. None of that matters to him. And on the positive side, he doesn't care that you're uneducated or you're poor or you have, you know, you're not the most talented. None of that matters to him. That's not where your worth is for him. And so it's just a really important message for the Pharisees from the negative end and I think for his disciples, because again, they will ironically be in the same place the Pharisees are now, the religious leaders, the looked-to people, the people in status, and he wants them to be different, and uh, by God's grace and the humility of the apostles, by and large, they are. You know, When we read through the book of Acts, we find that they are very different from the religious leaders that came before them and the political leaders that exist around them, and Paul gets huge credit for a lot of that too, because he is uh, he he was both. He was the power status guy, and he completely understood what it meant to be taken down a few notches or a bunch of notches, as he would say, all the notches. Yeah. Like Lorraine said, it's easy. You know, we we do live in an era where, at least up until very recently, I think, without even recognizing it, we were confusing celebrity with quality when it came to pastors, and we were confusing charisma with character, and so. It is, a, it is the transition that I think a lot of us are going through and a lot of the church is going through. And that, that's why I do think, and I, 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 I've talked about it before, I, I do think that the, the church going forward in America, God is is prepping us to be quiet. He's prepping us to be quieter. I think there will be very few celebrity pastors anymore. I think even good ones like Billy Graham are just not the direction we're going anymore. I think instead, we're going to have a bunch of, bunch of quiet, soft churches that are going to be changing the culture and getting no credit for it. And- and if we've discipled properly, they will be at least okay and hopefully comfortable with getting no credit for it. Um, so anyway, that's a whole nother story. Thank you for joining us the journey is a ministry of discipleship matters which is an extension of focus church and is created by david mcgill for the purpose of helping equip pastors to build discipleship communities in their own churches if you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by david you can check out his website davidmcgill.com